it rained. It rained so hard that day. And they had to sit in the back of their back end loader because there wasn't no room for them in the front. They were in a storm, which happened all the time in Memphis. And uh, Echo Cole and Robert Walker took refuge inside the Packer. The conditions were so terrible for the sanitation workers, they had no place to go. That was one of the biggest issues that my dad was pushing, was the, condi the work conditions. You know, the men not being able to uh, sit in the cab because of the rain. They couldn't come in out of the rain. These two workers were just trying to get out of the storm and let it pass over and pass by. Uh, There's no place to eat lunch, so a lot of times they would eat lunch sitting inside the packer. And, of course, there's maggots and all kinds of crud falling out of there. They only had 15 minutes for lunch. And something happened to the packer mechanism, and it went off. It was a bad truck. It was a bad mechanism. And T.O. Jones had gone to the sanitation department and protested this truck already and said it needs to be replaced. He kept telling them that those particular packers were unsafe. But the city sanitation department, headed by um, Henry Loeb, who became the mayor, wouldn't spend the money. You got the back end loader versus the side loader. If you got the side loader, if someone is sitting in the side loader, you hear the noise, mm, you got a chance to get out. But with the, the packer, the overhead, you, you don't have that opportunity. And uh, a woman who was in her house looking out the window saw this happen, this big packing device came down on the two guys. They tried to get out, of course, but it snagged their coat and pulled them in. And she said it was a horrible thing to witness. She saw one of the men, his feet were hanging out the back of the truck but the rest of his body was compacted like so much garbage. The men loved my daddy because he was one of them. And when Mr. Cole and Mr. Walker lost their life in that loader, that's when he said, we got a strike. It wasn't no, well, let's think about it. it was, let's do it. And you got 1,300 men or more. They just decided, this is, we're sick of this. This is just too much. And the next morning, on Monday morning, people looked out and there's no sanitation workers to be found. There's no trucks running, nothing. The death of Robert Walker and Echo Cole in the back of a garbage truck on that cold, rainy day in 1968 set off a strike in Memphis like no other. Black sanitation workers took a courageous stand, a stand that drew the American labor movement and the civil rights movement together, and it changed the course of our history. This is the I Am Story podcast. 
And I'm Lee Saunders, the president of AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. I was just a teenager when the strike erupted, but it would have a deep impact on my life and the lives of millions of Americans, whether they know it or not. You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. The most legendary civil rights leader of our time would eventually be drawn into the center of this drama. It is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. It's actually what my father and his team stood up for throughout his leadership. And that was dignity and respect. These workers got zero respect from the city. So they stood up to the boss and said, you're not going to treat us this way anymore. And it goes back to those famous four words that the Memphis sanitation workers had. I am a man. They don't see us as men and women. So this story is about more than just a strike. It's about a fight to recognize the dignity of a group of workers in Memphis. And that fight resonated across the country. And my union, AFSCME, isn't afraid to take a stand. Our identity was forged in this fight. Where it all started was with two AFSCME leaders, Bill Lucy, who was just a young staffer back then, and Jerry Wirth, the head of AFSCME at the time. Jerry was a man who never walked away from a challenge. A strike is a big thing, whether it's a small group or a large group. It's an immense undertaking. And in a place like Memphis on the Arkansas-Mississippi border, it's more than an immense <laughs> undertaking. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a fantastic undertaking. An act of ultimate courage. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, it's not only courage. I, I flew to Memphis from Detroit uh, the morning that the strike started, uh, February 12th. This was different. Uh, this was just fundamentally different than anything that we had, at least I had encountered before. It was February 1968, and Bill Lucy was a tall, lanky union organizer living in D.C. <laughs> At the time, I would have been about 31, 32 years old. Bill had been a union member since his early 20s, but he had just been hired on to work with AFSCME the year before. And suddenly, he gets a call telling him to fly to Memphis. The president at that time was a fellow by the name of Jerry Wirth, uh, who for some mistaken reason thought I knew Memphis, Tennessee and, and, and all of its you know, nuances. Bill was born in an African-American family in Memphis, but they moved away when he was just an eight-year-old kid. That's why I say I have no idea why he thought I understood Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> Uh, I, I was from Memphis, but I had grown up in California. Going back to Memphis after so many years, the young Bill Lucy was surprised to find the city hadn't changed that much, as he explained in 1968 to some university researchers. And I came in February. It was the first time coming back. Do you have any me memory of it or oh, yeah. any recollection of how it was? Yes. Mm -hmm. 
there hasn't been an awful lot of changes <laughs> to take place uh, since <laughs> since I left, and particularly in the well, area. That's not what other folks say now. Well, in the area that I, I'm most familiar with. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, could you, is it possible for you to trace uh, your first involvement or the union's first involvement with what happened in Memphis? Uh, I, at, the, at the time when I first became aware of it, I was out in Detroit on another assignment. At that point, it was about a day old. Mm -hmm. uh, and that it uh, looked like it could be resolved pretty easy, uh, except that, uh, you know, we felt that some, some of our you know, headquarters staff people should be there. Now, who called you? Uh, the president of the union. Mr. And he wanted us to come down and just do what we could to get the problem resolved. We, we knew about some of the background. So I, I, went, I went down. Um, I, I drove to the airport and parked in the uh, short-term parking. <laughs> Bill Lucy would not see his car for several months. I, 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 for a long time, held the longest parking obligation in the union. <laughs> When he landed in Memphis, he began to realize what the sanitation workers were up against. To start with, the timing was all wrong. Any union in his right mind would not call for a citywide strike in February, the middle of the winter, particularly in sanitation services. Because you got a garbage strike that nobody smells. There's no pressure. had really thought a whole lot about sanitation workers in the city of Memphis or anywhere else for that matter. I mean, the, the general thought is that you put the garbage outside and it disappears. It's gone the next day. Well, you know, who knew their, their sanitation worker? They're invisible. And so they have no political clout these were jobs that were almost reserved for black and other poor workers. And the city of Memphis was not about to sit down and talk to a union about these kinds of workers. So Bill Lucy and the union team sat down with the men to find out what exactly was at the heart of the matter. And when we listened to the workers in this big meeting that they had described the things that had taken place. The, the things, I mean, it, it was just scary to death to, to, to hear some of the folks talk about the things that had occurred during their employment with the city. We didn't have uh, drinking water. We didn't have nowhere to sit and nowhere to eat. As a matter of fact, there was a low barbecue and we used to go around in the back and order our food and they would give it to us out the back door. Okay, my name is Cleopha Smith and uh, I came involved in the strike in 1968. Cleo was pretty new on the job when the strike started. A lot of the workers were middle-aged, but he was young, just 26. Yeah, it was, it was dangerous and unhealthy, too, because it was six of us all together, two up there on the truck on each side, 
uh, four of us on the ground, two on each side, and when we would come out the back of the yards with the tubes, we would uh, hand them up. They would dump them, pack it, give us the tub back. But when we got ready to go to the landfill, we had to get up on the back of the garbage and ride to the landfill. And uh, a lot of the older men, uh, when they got ready to use the bathroom, they used to get the number three wash tub and get up in the back of the truck, get some newspaper, and get up in there and do what they had to do, wrap it up. Wasn't able to wash their hands. And by me being young at that time, I just waited until I got home. I just couldn't do it. it <laughs> I, couldn't see, I couldn't see myself doing that. And the type of cans back then that, you know, because your garbage wasn't covered, you know, and they go pick up cans, there'd be a dead dog sitting off in it. But they still had to bring it around. The sanitation workers' children saw what their dads had to put up with. Michael Leach was the son of a longtime sanitation worker who became a striker, Baxter Leach. They were some of the most disrespected people there were. People laughed and talked about them. It were the kids. They didn't understand uh, what they had to do. And they, you know, back then, you know, they had to go in the back of the houses to get the trash. And they had to, they were so heavy, you know, they put them over the shoulder and, had, and then the, the bottom would be rotten. So, you know, you got juice and maggots and different things uh, uh, wasting on you. And then in the evening, when we got ready to get off, to get on the bus, and uh, got ready to get on the bus, the white guy said, you can't get on here because of the stench. And he didn't let me on, so I wound up walking all the way to get home. So it took me a good two hours to get home. But yet still, this was something that had to be done. And Memphis used to be one of the cleanest cities in the United States. We was uh, in the top five everything. One of the cleanest city, one of the friendliest city. One of the Welcome to the great city of Memphis, the nation's cleanest city. A rapidly growing metropolis of almost a half million people on the banks of the Mississippi River. Memphis is a first city, winner of 15 first place awards offered by the National Cleanup, Paint Up, Fix Up Bureau. Memphis in 1948, 1950, and 1951 won the Ernest E. Trigg Trophy as the nation's cleanest city. In 1952... But the men who did the work to keep the city clean were living in poverty. And most of them, like Cleo Smith, were family men. Well, at that time, my baby, my children, they were small. Uh, we had six little children, and I, I was living right down the streets on Mason Street in the project. And I worked, what, six weeks? Yeah, six weeks. My first check was $125. I cried like a baby. Six weeks and my check was $125. I cried like a baby, I'm gonna be honest, because I just didn't see how I was gonna make it. The frustrations had been mounting for years. The work was so hard and the pay was so bad that a lot of full-time sanitation workers needed a second job to make ends meet. And then the two workers got killed. It was shocking, it was, it was shocking. And uh, when we got the news, that they had got crushed up in the truck. 
we had to keep on working. So we just had to keep on working. I, matter of fact, I don't even know, uh, we didn't even uh, have the opportunity to go to the funerals. Uh, they didn't have workman's compensation. They didn't have any backup. Uh, the city gave them five, their families $500 each. Well, the funerals alone cost $900. My name is Michael Honey. I'm a labor and civil rights historian and a Martin Luther King scholar. Michael Honey is also the author of the award-winning book, Going Down Jericho Road which is widely seen as the definitive history of this period. So this was the kind of conditions, and I knew a lot about this because my first book, uh, Southern Labor and Black Civil Rights, Organizing Memphis Workers, went from the 1920s and 30s up to 1968 and traced the evolution of unionism in the Deep South. Up till that time, a lot of people thought, well, unions didn't do anything in the South. They, they got nowhere. That's not true. They made great strides. Uh, but they were always coming up against the Jim Crow conventions, which kept white and black workers apart. For Bill Lucy, it was an incredible display of solidarity that these workers, these black men at the lowest rung of the social ladder, would try to take on the city's powerful white establishment. But the decision to strike didn't happen overnight. They'd been trying for years. They had attempted to build a union before, but this was different. Uh, accepting the recommendation from the committee. This does not mean that you will go to work in the morning. Well, the president of, of the local land was a fellow by the name of T.O. Jones, Thomas Oliver Jones. I'm going to tell him he can't do that. <laughs> I'm telling you now. Mr. Austin, if you can't get somebody over here to get justice for us, you cannot bust out of a damn head. Well, the first time I met him, we had 1,300 people on strike, and he was the leader. Uh, so you, you, you conclude right away that they trust his leadership. My feeling. I feel like the real... Uh, T.O. Jones was about maybe a little short of five foot. Uh... Well, a, a guy who is round and short, <laughs> the, the voice is a, is a commanding voice. He, he was in charge. Uh, they had made a bunch of efforts from the early 60s on to organize a union and get recognition from the city based on years and years of patient organizing and a lot of defeats, actually. And T.O. Jones was at the heart of it. T.O. Jones' son, Jesse Jones, says his father learned about unions during World War II. T.O. had grown up in a poor black family in Memphis and left school in eighth grade. Those were hard times. You know, those years, 30s, 40s, those were hard times for black Memphians, especially here in Memphis. So, you know, he started uh, bootlegging liquor. He was uh, a driver, uh, you know, a salesman, bootlegging liquor. And uh, he got into some trouble, and that's how he ended up going to the Navy. And when he went to the Navy, that's when he began to learn more about a disciplined life. He did do a tour overseas for two years, and that's when he came back to California, and he worked in the shipyard. And 
you know, the increments of being on the docks and all that stuff, he learned about unions. And uh, he saw it to be something that was needed, especially for blacks. It was a time when a lot of young black men from Memphis went out to the West Coast. Uh, to work in shipyards and so forth during the 50s. But then this recession hit in 1957. So it forced a lot of people to come back to Memphis. And when they came back to Memphis, they couldn't find anything except this kind of job. He comes back to Memphis and uh, he marries my mom and then he becomes a sanitation worker. But after all that time serving in the Navy and working in unionized shipyards, T.O. had a hard time bowing to the treatment he got collecting garbage for the city. I can tell you that uh, things were really rough with the men of the public works department, especially in the garbage department. A man really didn't have but one thing, and that was this. He went to work, he went home. If he showed up the next morning, the foreman desired to... Uh, Fire, it could be fired without any recourse. No job security. No job security whatsoever. Uh, without investigation. No investigation. No question asked. And there were a number of key people, sort of cadre, that worked around with him uh, that were like that, that they had, they had experienced unionization and knew the benefits of it. And as they said, you know, in a unionized job, they can't mess with you. In 63, T.O. led a small strike with 32 other workers calling for a union. And they were fired. When they were fired, they could get their jobs back with one condition, that they wouldn't pursue a union. My dad, being who he is, the other 32 guys, he told them to go back, but he was going to continue to pursue a union. He conceived of himself as an organizer, and if he went back, he wouldn't be an organizer. So some of the unions um, gave him some support. He worked as a, like a janitor for, for one of the unions to make some money, but it was terribly hard on his family because he never was making very much money, and he would always put going out, organizing a meeting, going to see people, things like that that you do to build a union. He would always put that first. It was painful, very, because I, our family split. My mother had a heart attack. She had a stroke, actually. You know, uh, the stress from the union, the stress of being married, and the weight of taking care of six kids was overwhelming, you know. And uh, we ended up being split. We ended up in the court system. And uh, it was tough for my brothers and sisters and I. But Jesse never blamed his father. He saw his father as a leader, fighting for something bigger. And T.O. used to bring him along to the union meetings with the workers. And uh, they became fond of me. They started calling me Lil T.O. And me and love my daddy. I mean, literally, love my daddy. And we began to put things together with other labor leaders in the city, and the retail clerks, they gave us a place to meet. They gave us a little office space in our hall at 904 Vance. And this is where we really got our start. The little office was my dad's, and they would have meetings there. 
they would have secret meetings there because the crowd is beginning to grow from 40, 50, 60, 100, 200, standing room only. And when the two sanitation workers died, that changed everything. The momentum was so strong, now you got a crowd, so you got to have a meeting somewhere else. Firestone had a union hall, so they started meeting there. And you, you began to see 600, 700 men, and they're coming from work to the meeting. They're not coming from home, they're coming from work. And you smell the stench, you know, and all that. You see the uh, tiredness in their face, but they want to do something, because something is better than nothing. We were sick and tired of being sick and tired. See, we hadn't forgot about what happened to Mr. Echo and Mr. Walker. We hadn't forgot that. And we was determined that something was going to be dead or else. That was just the bottom line on that. We didn't really know. We just, you know, felt that we was going to be able to come out of this thing with a union. And by now, T.O. had made some connections. He realized a few years back that they couldn't win this battle on their own. So T.O. had made contact with a union up north, ASME. It had won some battles organizing public employees in various states. And by this point, the mid-60s, ASME had just elected a dynamic new president, Jerry Wirth, and he was taking the union in a new direction. A lot of the craft unions, you know, was pretty much segregated or just didn't bother to organize people like the black sanitation workers. Jerry Wirth comes in to revolutionize AFSCME. Uh, it took a drastic change in events. Uh, the union, seven years ago, would never have gotten involved in Memphis. But we sort of felt and still feel that those who are exploited most by the system are worthy of most of our effort. But Jerry Wirth and T.O. didn't get along too well because T.O. was not a professional organizer at all. But he was the guy who was with the workers and knew what they thought and knew what they needed and how to talk to them and so forth. So uh, then they made T.O. into a union representative and paid him some salary. wasn't much, but it kept him going. And so he was the ASME organizer in the Public Works Department in the city of Memphis. He was the union. So when the sanitation workers suddenly went on strike, bad timing or not, Jerry Wirth sent in a team to help them. And at first, Bill Lucy thought this might not be so hard. Well, um, we had been somewhat accustomed to dealing with uh, mayors, city councils, we simply needed to sit down with somebody who was interested in solving the problem. So we simply said, well, let's go down to, to City Hall and um, talk to whoever's in charge. And uh, so two or three hundred of us just marched from where our meeting was taking place to the mayor's office. A fellow by the name of uh, Henry Loeb. Henry Loeb was a tall, charismatic, smooth-talking fellow who just recently been elected mayor. <laughs> uh, John Wayne type. 
In World War II, he'd been a commander on a torpedo boat, alongside the likes of JFK, according to the story. The, the mayor of Memphis, Henry Lowe, thought he was John Wayne. When we met with him in his office to talk to him, we didn't know until later that he had his, his shotgun beneath his desk. <laughs> I mean, it's, there are three or four of us sitting in his office trying to explain to him what's going on. And he's got his shotgun beneath his table. We know the problems and have been working on them, as has been well publicized. Pressure or an illegal strike or work stoppage are simply not the ways to handle a problem. This is not New York, and nothing will be gained by ignoring our laws. You know, he treated us as if we were children uh, with no understanding. I mean, these were his people. And he had been formerly the uh, director of the Public Works Department prior to him becoming mayor. So he, he, he told us, directly that he had taken care of them all these years and he would continue to do so. It was that way before when I was with the Public Works Department once a month. I made the rounds of the Public Works Department and got into a lot of things that were brought up. And uh, that arrangement is there today to anyone wants to avail himself of it. I mean, uh, he had treated them with this paternalistic foolishness for all of the years. But he hadn't hadn't run into anybody like us before. Not, so we asked him, are you really serious about talking to the workers about their problem? He says, yeah. So we went back to the meeting hall and brought another thousand workers down to City Hall. And uh, the, the mayor was beginning to get, understand he was dealing with something a little bit different than he had been dealing with in the past. They tried to calmly lay out the issues. The union organizers, together with a group of workers, had hammered out a list of their top issues. At this point, they weren't even talking about more money, but they did want a grievance procedure. And uh, T.O.'s view was that there ought to be something on paper that says what their family would be entitled to in the event something happens to any workers. And most importantly, they wanted the city to recognize their union. When we went back to tell the mayor, the mayor went bananas. I mean, he, he just went berserk. I mean, he's not going to sit down and talk with some sanitation workers about their situation. From there, things heated up very quickly. It's time to go to work and it's time to talk. I suggested to these men today that you go back to work. As a free American citizen, I'm going to express myself as a free American citizen. You are expressing yourself by saying I am not working for those stinking wages and conditions. At this point, the union team was made up of four negotiators, and their main spokesman was P.J. Champa, a longtime organizer with the United Auto Workers in Pittsburgh. Champa was very outspoken. He, he early on concluded that the mayor of Memphis, Henry Lowe, uh, had no respect for the workers in, 
As a result, Champa had no respect for him and, uh, and let him know it. Mayor said he would talk if your men went back to work without giving you any Yeah, but Mayor Loeb said he'd talk. He talked all morning and didn't say anything. What assurance have I got that he's not going to talk for a week and not say anything? How many times have a labor dispute been settled by the men going back to work and then arriving at a settlement? If work is not resumed by 7 a.m. Thursday, February 15th, we'll immediately begin replacing those people who have chosen to abandon their jobs and their rights. Chairman, what's your Chairman, reaction what your to the reaction? statement? To the my, rea statement. my reaction to the mayor's statement that he has been threatening to do this since we opened the meetings uh, here a couple of days ago, he's not changing at all. It's, it's the natural. He's going to try his muscle. The men are going to try to hold on to their jobs. May the better man come out on top. The mayor does organize a small fleet of trucks to do garbage pickup in some neighborhoods, but the trash is starting to build up, and talks are going nowhere. He doesn't want to recognize the union. Yesterday he told you or someone in the press that even though I am discussing with these out-of-towners, I am not recognizing that there's a union here. Now what does that mean to you? As long as you continue to break the law and endanger the public health and welfare, there will be no further talk at any level of government. The minute the men go back to work, discussion will resume. In Washington, D.C., the head of AFSCME, Jerry Wirth, is closely watching the events in Memphis and decides to bring the full force of the union into the fight. So he gets on a plane to Memphis and joins the negotiating team. This strike can only go on so long as these men these residents and workers for the city of Memphis want it to go on. But I assure you of one thing, on behalf of the 375,000 members of our international union, that so long as they want help and they want support, by God, they're going to get that help and that support. Jerry Wirth had hoped he could break the stalemate, but the mayor refuses to budge. The mayor paints himself into a corner that we can't even help him get out of. So the union leaders need to find other allies in City Hall and some way to move forward. They discover the city council has a public works committee. So we go to them and say, help us. So this committee, I mean, we hassle them a little bit. Nearly 700 Memphis sanitation workers staged a four-hour sit-in demonstration at City Hall today on this 11th day of the city's garbage strike. The workers vowed they would not leave until a city council committee produced a resolution recommending union recognition and a dues checkoff. We spent hours and hours explaining all this stuff. What works in their favor is that the committee's chairman is a young black city councilor named Fred Davis, who's just been elected. Hold it, hold it, hold it. I will preside. I will preside here as best as I can. In fact, the entire city council had just been elected a month earlier under a new system that gives the mayor a lot of administrative power, but also gives black residents of Memphis more voting power. The new council has 13 members, and for the first time, three of the councilors are black. The, the committee finally agrees with us and says we should resolve this. The recommendation of our committee to the council will be that the council recognize 
the union as collective bargaining agent uh, for the union. So we think we're in pretty good shape. You know, we'll have a meeting the following morning. The city council will adopt this proposition and give or take a little bit the next day or so. 1,300 folks will be going back to work. The garbage will start to be picked up and so on and so on. But some of the strikers' supporters aren't so convinced. Reverend Ezekiel Bell among them. Well, I want you to know one thing. I'm bringing my garbage with me tomorrow in the back of my car. And I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring my little sleeping pad. Because if the decision is not right, then by jingo, I'm not going home anymore. I mean it. We didn't know it at the time, but the mayor had really called every member of the city council and absolutely made it clear that he didn't want anybody voting for any settlement of any strike. When the city council meets the next day, the audience is so large they have to move the meeting to the auditorium. Because now, it's not just sanitation workers. Dozens of civil rights leaders from the local black churches have joined them, including Reverends James Lawson and Ralph Jackson. When we arrived at the convention center, city council was on the stage, but instead of announcing the letter of agreement, they said that um, the mayor's office had to do it. You see, we're not the bargaining agent. If, uh, if the city has one, it's the mayor. Uh, we naturally, we're as concerned as can be about this matter, but we can't take an official position in it. Uh, after reading that statement, they voted to approve it with uh, the black uh, councilman voting no. And uh, all efforts to be heard were denied. The uh, adjourned, walked out, and all of the microphones taken down. And then they turned off all the lights, turned off everything. They shut the building down and left. Now we got a couple thousand workers in City Hall with nowhere to go. And the men are really, really just beyond belief. It was initially bedlam, but we toned down the noise and got people to look at the stage and listen to us. And, and Jerry Worth and I talked directly about it. Uh, we quickly agreed that we would go to the outside and walk to Mason Temple in a nonviolent walk in the street. I called Director of Fire and Commissioner of Fire and Police, Frank Holloman, and he said, okay. Everybody will fall in line. Jerry Worth calls out instructions to the crowd. And we will get on the left side of the street and march down in an orderly fashion to Mason Hall. So we started down Main Street and were told that we could walk in the street if we walked on the right side of the cellar lines. 
the white line. It was going very well. And we were laughing. I told them, because I had just said to them, at the rate we are going, traffic will be backed up into West Memphis. When suddenly from the side street came police cars, each of them filled with a four white policemen. They proceeded to use their cars to force the marchers over to the sidewalk. More and more they were coming up against the buildings. So pretty soon you've got nowhere for the marchers to go. And uh, I had twice turned around and said to these men, uh, they're trying to break us up. I said, don't do anything. Uh, if they move over, don't touch the cars. Stay away from them. At this point, the police, it, looked, it was already an army of policemen, but it kept getting larger and larger. Finally, this group of men put their hands on the car. The moment they put their hands on that squad car, <laughs> these police officers poured out of the cars with mace cans and gassed us all. And for the first time in my life, I was gassed or maced. And that's when I got mad. Now up on the curb, too, not out in the street, up on the curb, they came after us. In the next episode, that peaceful protest draws a violent response, and the strike takes on a whole new dimension. The way in which these men have been treated thus far has galvanized people of goodwill to their support. And we are moving from this moment in order to see to it that their effort will not fail in Memphis. That's next time on the I Am Story Podcast.